0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. I am John Pod the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, AEI Scholar, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon... Washington commentary columnist for commentary magazine, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So, Matt, um, you and I were uh, having an exchange yesterday uh, over text about the president's uh, announcement that he was uh, directing his people to suspend all negotiations and talks over a stimulus bill with Nancy Pelosi in the House until after the election which of course Trump said he would win and then they could could make a deal. And uh, I was fascinated to hear you say, or read you say, (laughs) that you thought that this might tell worse for Nancy Pelosi than it would for Trump and the Republicans. Uh, Can you elaborate on this theory?
1: All right, well, sure, let's uh, stipulate that Trump and the Republicans might already be screwed. Um, and so the damage to them would be marginal from a lack of any deal. But let's also go back and rewind the clock a little bit. Now, remember, in the spring, the Pelosi House passed this uh, $3 trillion bill, I think it was, to the next stage of relief. I just think it was called the HEROES Act. Um, and that, of course, is a dead letter in the Senate. And so for much of the summer, there was no movement on another um, a coronavirus stimulus bill uh, because the two camps are just so uh, far apart, and also because neither camp thought it was really in their interest to do any more stimulus. The sense of necessity that we encountered in the winter um, when the coronavirus first hit uh, was no longer there. That sense of emergency, which is really the only thing that compels the two sides to make an agreement any longer. Um it wasn't until later in the summer, I think around the beginning of September, that a group of um, primarily the freshman House Democrats sent a letter to Pelosi begging her to restart the negotiations. And what I take from that letter was that they were hearing from their constituents that they needed something. And moreover, when you think about this Congress, remember, the, other than the, uh, the CARES Act um, and CARES II uh, earlier this year, the only thing that a lot of these freshmen have to show for their time in Congress is impeaching a president um, uh, on the eve of his reelection campaign. So uh, I think begrudgingly Pelosi restarted the process. Now, who is Pelosi negotiating with? Not the Republicans. She's not. She is not negotiating with the Republican. That's something everyone needs to understand. She's negotiating with Steve Mnuchin, who is a liberal Democrat. And there is the,
0: a the, tre- the Treasury Secretary.
1: The Treasury Secretary. Yeah. He's a liberal Democrat. And there was a lot of frustration among Republicans on the Hill that he gave the store away in the earlier bills, and is really just trying to reach an agreement more than trying to preserve any modicum of, you know, uh, Republican economic policy in these in these deals. So when the word came from Trump uh, yesterday that he was suspending the negotiation, uh, he said until after the election. But then um, just earlier today. He said uh, that he wants now some smaller bills, which was the original Republican proposal. I wasn't surprised. And one, because the Republicans in the Senate um, aren't interested in spending another two trillion dollars, which it seems to be Pelosi's final ask. Uh, And and it's the people who are going to go home uh, whose constituents will be most disappointed will be Democrats. And so it's not really in the you know, again, just. Shorn of whether we should or should not do this it's not in the republican president's interest to help the Democrats get a win
0: okay so uh that's a that's an interesting perspective and is um is clearly a minority perspective in this sense, which is uh trump there was no reason. For Trump to make this announcement, right? In other words, the negotiation either works or it doesn't work, and it can go on or not go on. Uh, Trump's decision to unilaterally say we're done, I'm, we're walking away from the table, um, had about it a politically gobsmacking quality, which is he's getting terrible polls. He's had a bad, you know, he's had a bad week in every, you know, most conceivable senses. And he's announcing, uh, "I am saying we are not going to have a uh, stimulus or, you know, uh, bailout, small bit whatever you want to call it, bill. It's my decision to do this. Uh, therefore, I am owning that we're walking away from the table. And frankly, as a simple matter of politics, I cannot fathom what possible advantage that is on a you know 28 days before the election uh the the number of voters in the united states who are voting who are who have now become uh, are concerned about the spiraling uh fiscal crisis and you know uh, uh national debt and uh, budgetary deficits um as a, as a, as a factor in American politics right now would appear to be about negative 3 billion percent, used to be one of the two or three or four major economic issues in in the country. And in part, because of behavior of the Republicans and the Democrats, the the notion that Trump is all of a sudden going to announce himself as a, you know, with fiscal probity, uh, that's, that just doesn't sell. So uh, he has basically said, don't worry, Nancy, I'm going to take all of the blame for there not being a second CARES Act. Abe? Yeah, especially Trump making himself the mouthpiece for this
2: at the time that he did um, contributes, I think, greatly to this narrative that Trump is spiraling into this um, sort of unforesee, i mean uh um unprecedented degree of reckless um conduct and uh is a danger to the country I'm, I'm not saying this is this constitutes a danger to the country but it it feeds um what's what's been going on right up until that
3: but he <coughs> i mean the notion that this is uh, some sort of strategic foresight was at work here is betrayed by the fact that after saying, I'm walking away from the table, he went right back to the table, right? And the markets tanked, and within hours he said, this is something I want, I want this, you know, these piecemeal bills. And now this morning he's saying, move fast, Nancy Pelosi, I'm waiting to sign. So if he was interested in, in playing hardball, you know, he kind of just he gave up that strategy pretty quickly.
4: Well, and like he did during the debate with Biden, he actually stepped on a on a some momentum where Nancy Pelosi was finally being seen for the obstructionist, difficult, you know, deeply partisan actor she had been throughout these so-called negotiations, right? That despite the press constantly saying Republicans were the ones blocking this, it was clear that this was Pelosi's show and she was controlling it and she had no political interest in giving what might be seen as a win to to Trump by by striking a new deal that narrative was finally starting to to sink in with voters and just at the moment it did trump barges in like the kool-aid man again and like hey yeah i'm gonna control things now i'm taking us off the table now i'm coming back to the table and just turns it into utter chaos yet again um just like he didn't let biden prattle on during the debate and reveal himself to be rather meandering in his policy thoughts but what did he say he
3: said we're not negotiating until after the election after i win suggesting that he's holding this package hostage until he right, wins which the is, election. Right, which
4: is exactly what Nancy Pelosi was doing. And, you know, and yeah. she
3: literally said we don't, uh, no deal is better.
4: I mean, if it, if she said
3: this, no deal is better than uh, the deal that we don't want. That's an easy right. position to leverage. And yet he decided to not only adopt her position and make it his own, but then abandon it after what, four right. or five hours.
1: I think there's the assumption here that the deal that might have been struck between Mnuchin and Pelosi, had Mnuchin agreed to the two-trillion-dollar package, which is not just—it's not debt, by the way—that that people are concerned about. It's also the fact that a lot of it is shoveling money to public sector unions in blue states, and Republicans are against that. Um, is that they would pass the Senate? That's it, it. Wouldn't it wouldn't pass the Senate? The deal would not pass the Senate. And what I think is interesting about this is it shows the um, the resurgence of uh, the, you know, let's call it club for growth Republicanism, uh, in the Senate caucus among Republicans, um, which, which I had not really anticipated. Uh, your, earlier than in, in the year when the virus hit, we thought, Oh, it would be a more solidaristic, more nationalist Republican, uh, party willing to spend more money. And that was certainly the case when it, you had a sense of real national emergency. Uh, but now, especially as the election looming and, uh, the everyone seems to assume Trump will lose it. Um, you would find that the Republican Party is girding its loins for uh, unified Democratic control, and where we, and that Republican Party will be much more about we're not spending more money and we're not taxing anymore, and a more traditional, I think, Republican
0: focus. Well, okay, so the where I am confused about this is that. Obviously, it could pass the Senate. What it couldn't do, or what McConnell didn't have, was a majority of Republicans in his caucus. In other words, if every Democrat is going to vote for the bill, it passes the Senate. The Republicans don't have 90 seats control. Um, and so we have moved now from a, from a time at which, you know, you needed some bipartisan consensus in the Senate to pass anything, when, you know, when uh, to a, a time when apparently anything that has a bipartisan vote is now ideologically suspect and that the only bills that a Republican will pass are ones that get 51 Republicans and no Democrats vote for because of the di- uh, because of this um, dynamic in our body politic where the two parties can't speak to each other and they are simply they're like negative polarized images of each other. And in a national crisis, if you assume that we're still in a crisis, that was kind of supposed to stop. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is responsible for it, not, or that Senate Republicans are responsible for it not stopping. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi is behaving like somebody who doesn't believe that in a national crisis, you have to help create new, consensus, you know, a new consensus across party lines. So you give up some stuff and they give up some stuff and everybody comes together because the country needs it. She is as hyper-partisan a a political player as we have ever seen. And she has no feel interest or anything for, obviously, for passing a bill in in the way that, say, Steve Mnuchin wants to pass a bill, which is We'll just get a lot of money and throw it against the wall. And I don't really care how it's constituted. We need to we need to grease the we need to grease the wheels here. And um, he you know, Trump and Trump was not Trump's logic or whatever he did yesterday was not helped by the fact that Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, came out and said, There better be more money, or this is the country is gonna. There's going to be a lot of suffering. Now again, I don't have a. uh, I am sure that the Pelosi bill was garbage. The question is, is what Trump did erratic and politically foolish, or you know, has he by doing what he did, has he created new room or new space or something for? negotiations by saying he's not going to negotiate anymore. And I don't know whether his behavior over the last 12, 18 hours tells us anything. Cause he said, I'm walking away from the table. And then he tweeted seven different proposals for bills. He wants to pass, which certainly sounds like negotiating. Uh, so did, did somebody go, Oh my God, Mr. What are you doing? Like That's crazy. What you just did we can't look like we have nothing going in or was this some larger strategy where he says I'm walking away from the table but I want these bills so we can get away from the table on this big 2 trillion thing but maybe we can send out a $1200 check to everybody and maybe we can bail out the airlines. Matt, what do you where do you I mean we don't know obviously. Right.
1: I mean I think it's safe to say that there is rarely any larger strategy at work. I mean it's it's what what he feels at a given moment, um, based on who he's talked to most recently that compels him to do certain things. I mean, and that, um, that's clear. I mean, that's been our lives for the last five years. I think in this case that Mnuchin was moving toward a, an arrangement with Pelosi that would have put Senate Republicans in a very difficult bind because then they would have been the people obstructing this grand deal. What happened was now that Trump said, I'm walking away, I don't like this thing. Once again, he reaches the deck. And so, as you point out, who knows what's going to happen? Um, uh, but it's not going to be what we were veering towards, which is something that just probably would, the, the, especially the, the senators, right? Because then you would have had a divided Republican caucus where the senators up for re-election would have been put in a bad spot. Uh, and And now it's like, well, you know, once again, Trump has um, uh, knocked over the the cart, and we're
3: we're gonna just have to come up with something new. Um, but didn't we get to this place based on the president's recalcitrance in the first place? Um, the reports that I haven't been following these negotiations all that closely, but the reports that I remember being privy to was that um, the the president, wasn't really eager to strike a deal until we got closer into mid-September, and then a fire was lit under it in the first week of October, all in response to his political condition, his deteriorating political position. Um, he was much closer to Senate Republicans and then began to waver, right? Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: I mean, that's not the way I understand it. But Okay, please, correct me. I mean, it could be I, like I said, I think most of the pressure for a new deal is coming from freshman House Democrats because they have they're the ones who need to go to their districts in swing, swing districts and say, "We are doing something to help your economic conditions." That right. we, we're now living in this bifurcated system where the states that have reopened are actually on the way to recovery. I mean, they're not there fully. That some people are not uh, being, you know, obviously they, there's a lot more that could um, uh, progress to be made. But the states that are uh, having the, the highest joblessness continue to be the states that impose the severest lockdown policies. So, from a Republican point of view, you're against the lockdowns, right? So, why would you do anything to help them? <laughs> it doesn't, right. make, it does, just doesn't make any sense that you would say, oh, we oppose these lockdowns, but we're going to start paying people and 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 doing and um, paying that paying the institutions to maintain them.
3: So Matt reminds me that in mid September there was this revolt of moderate House Democrats against Nancy Pelosi's uh, objections to a, a compromise deal, which actually brought her closer to the table too. And I had forgotten about that.
0: Well, okay. So the interesting aspect here is there there are different. Uh, there are things that clearly worked, and and then there are uh, you know sort of notional or you know um, gimmies in in this right. So I think it's pretty fair to say that it is generally accepted that the payroll uh, the Paycheck Protection Act was a was a success in the in the throw money at people so they won't lay people off to the extent possible, so that there is some kind of bridge for when. If things start picking up, uh, people aren't laid off and then rehired. They could. It basically, it's almost like it was like un, it was like private unemployment insurance being paid for by the government. Just keep people on staff, and then w- when the money runs out, if the economy is picking up, then you then you can just keep them on, and there'll be no interruption of service, and they won't have gone off and and lost their jobs. And that, um, particularly in certain very challenged and troubled industries, primarily the food uh, and beverage industry, and the sort of the entertainment industry writ large—food, movie theaters, amusement park, whatever you want to call it—the things that people do to amuse themselves uh, indoors, elsewhere—we're still in a—we're still in a lot of the country in a, ma- in a massive. A uh, dec- you know crisis that will take a decade or longer to recover from, and that's where the tragedy comes in here. And and it, it, I'm perfectly willing to accept that it's entirely Pelosi's fault. But um, uh, apparently there will not be that relief, and the, there will be there will be a second tranche of massive layoffs, and in going into the winter. Uh, and that's bad. <laughs> I mean, I there are going
1: to be a second tranche of layoffs. The The unemployment rate fell. The, the latest unemployment rate was lower. And I mean, sure, the labor force particip- participation rate fell too. But I mean, th- I think <laughs> I don't know how necessary. I, okay. I, uh, people obviously would benefit from added aid, and especially uh, in, rather. Forget about the entertainment industry for a second. The industry that's really on the verge of collapse is airlines, right. right? And that's the one where the government has a historic, you know, uh, tradition of intervening. Um, but I, I mean, I, I just I'm not so clear. The economy. It's not clear to me that the economy lives or dies on the basis of a stimulus package being passed in the next three weeks. I uh, I think that's a narrative um, that people are are are, uh, you know, um, promoting, but it's not clear to me that it's borne out in the data. And I mean, I just, I I think if you look, if you look at the business headlines, um, our recovery is doing much better than most others. Uh, And, uh, and it seems to me that the determinative factor is whether the States have, have reduced these, uh, these very you know, strict controls over economic behavior.
0: Okay, so let's uh, let's continue to talk about this, but uh, give me a moment to talk to tell you guys uh, about Bills.com, today's sponsor. Because as we've been saying, being in debt sucks. Credit cards, student loans, mortgages, doesn't matter what kind, being in debt flat out stinks. Well, there is a way to defeat your debt, thanks to Bills.com. If you're losing sleep over maxed out credit cards or stressed out thinking about your mortgage payments or studentloansbills.com, can help you take back control of your life. The first step to lowering your monthly payments and becoming debt-free is to get a free debt assessment. It only takes a few minutes. It can save you hundreds or even thousands of dollars each month from debt settlement to personal loan consolidation to student loan or mortgage refinancing. Bills.com has you covered. They're part of the Freedom Financial Network, which has been in business since 2002 and settled over $10 billion in debt. So take that first step to defeating your debt. Get your free debt assessment today. Go to bills.com commentary. That's bills.com commentary, bills.com commentary. We thank bills.com for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, so, uh, Matt, you're making a substantive case against the bill, which I'm sure is correct. That is to say, read the Wall Street Journal editorial today, said the president's right to walk away from the table, said, look, Mnuchin got up got up as high as a, uh, and Mnuchin and the, and the Republican senators got up as high as a trillion six. Pelosi won't budge from two trillion. We're now throwing these numbers around like they are candy. I mean, if you remember, it was only um, 10 years ago or nine and a half, 11 years ago, uh, that the uh, Obama stimulus... Uh, which was a trillion-dollar bill, single largest dollar piece of legislation in American history by a factor of two. Nothing, and that seems to have broken the dam. We now speak about trillion-dollar legislation. Remember the trillion dollars in, in infrastructure uh, that that uh, maybe Trump and the Democrats could have uh, negotiated at the end of 2016, before uh, Trump retreated back into his base and the Democrats had made it clear that they could never deal with the president in any way, shape, or form. Um, we're now throwing these numbers around uh, as though they are, as though it's nothing. Um, uh, and this is a great predicate to the um, 2021 Democratic Control of the House, Senate, and the presidency—that we have now established—that a trillion-dollar bill is, you know, is actually kind of them. Um, it's like chintzy. You know, you don't want only a trillion-dollar bill. You got to have you know two trillion. Otherwise, you're just what are you? You're just like you're like you're cheap.
3: Well, we talked about this on the podcast before uh, imagining a Biden presidency. You know, if no deal goes through and Joe Biden enters office with Democratic majorities in the Congress, you know, the first order of business will be COVID relief. And all those other spending proposals, those trillions of dollars of progressive wish list items are are not going to be filled. That bill is just not going to be something that we can we can do. And the Republican Party will adopt a, a more hawkish approach towards debt and deficits. Um, not just because that's where the center of gravity is in the party, but also because there will be significant necessity. Um, we're, we've spent $5 trillion this year that we don't have. So a lot of people are going to be very frustrated with our fiscal condition. Um, but
0: Modern monetary policy, Noah. Well,
3: monetary yeah, I suppose you could policy. just print. We
0: can, we can coin the trillion dollar coin.
3: But here's and the other aspect of modern monetary policy. that even, the debt. even MMT advocates don't really talk about much is that in order to avoid inflationary pressure, you have to tax that money substantially and take it out of circulation. They don't get around to that part.
0: Well, look, I'm obviously kidding when I say there's an answer. But if you think that the Democrats are going to be satisfied, uh, you know, in 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 this notional uh, Biden and uh, all Democratic Washington with not doing their uh, wish list. Uh, You got another thing coming. No, I think they're going to be very
3: unsatisfied. I also think that
0: they are going to do it anyway, because they are going to bring on the Bartholomew and the OOBLEC soothsayers (laughs) who are going to tell them that it's okay to spend $10 trillion.
3: They're going to want to try. And it's going to be a months long process. It's going to be a months long process, just as Obamacare was a months long process. And that's where the seeds are sown for a 2022 backlash.
0: Not if you eliminate the filibuster it's not if you eliminate the filibuster it's not a month long process okay Why but they took care a month long process because they still needed 60 votes to close debate yes but we, we have a number the filibuster we, and who boy
4: we're but going ask. Why this is why they won't direct Biden in particular, but also um, you know Mark Kelly in Arizona will not directly answer that question when voters or the media put it to them. Will you eliminate the filibuster? Will you pack the Supreme Court? These are yes yes or no questions that people run either running for office uh, for the Senate or for the highest. Uh, office in the land, literally refused to answer. I, I'm finding it increasingly surreal that this is what voters actually want, is I get the whole, I'm I'm vague, you may project all of your empathetic feelings, and I'll project them back to you, uh, Biden's strategy, because it's obviously working for him. But we need to know answers to specific questions. <laughs> Those are some of the most important questions on a lot of voters' minds, I thought, and yet people seem to be willing to just take the non-answer as an answer. So I actually wonder, John, if, you know, they have a plan and they are deliberately not going to spell it out until after the, after the election, because people do not seem to be pressuring them for, for hard answers to very challenging questions that will have an immediate impact on the country if they enact these more radical policies.
0: Okay. Well, I think, first of all, we wanted to uh, tease out these two strands. So, Eliminating the filibuster obviously requires a Democratic Senate, and they don't know if they're going to get a Democratic Senate.
4: uh, South Carolina just became toss up, though, right? right.
0: What I'm saying is answering the question when you actually don't even have the you don't have enough information to suggest that you have the appropriate amount of power to do what you might do if it's a controversial thing seems to me to be politically prudent. Like, I'm not answering the question of whether or not, if this this other thing happens at the same time that I become president, we can do it, that we'll do it. But let's say that Biden said that he wanted to eliminate the filibuster because of Republican recalcitrance and the inability to ever make a deal with Republicans who are so terrible about making deals. One does not require the other. You do not have to pack the Supreme, you do not, you can, B for eliminating the filibuster, precisely so you can pass some amended version of the Green New Deal without packing the Supreme Court. You don't have to do both. And packing the Supreme Court, in in my my guess is that the closer you get to the packing of the Supreme Court, the more wildly unpopular it is. Or they even know, or the Biden people who have tested this and poll tested it know it is toxic. And so they don't want to go near it so i think you can do one without the other then and he you should may- say no i
4: won't pack the court which he, he refuses should. to say
0: well he won't because he's
1: afraid of the left exactly right. they're afraid right. they're still i don't think they're i mean look washington has decided the election is over but biden smartly is not behaving like it is no and i think course. one reason i think one reason he's continuing to go to the swing states and he's and he's continuing to refuse this is they they are afraid of a situation that has happened four years ago, where the left of the left thinks that the Democrats have nominated some corporate shill uh, who is just going to be a moderate and won't turn out to vote. And so, so w- what did he say recently? He was like, "Well, I'm not going to answer that question because that that would turn it into a political issue." Yeah. Well, of course, it's a political <laughs> issue.
0: That's what You're we're running for to president. Have. <laughs> yeah,
1: but he, but he. That betrayed, I think, this kind of unwillingness to talk about things that might alienate some part of his coalition. And the truth is, he does need that kind of marginal, you know, I mean, the three percent or whatever it is, to stick with them in order in order to to get past the finish
0: line. He's done some interesting. Biden's played some interesting games in the past week, though. And if you watched the town hall, I didn't watch the whole thing, but the 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 NBC town hall on Monday night, he specifically said, not only am I not a socialist, I beat the socialist. I'm the guy who stopped the socialist from becoming the Democratic nominee, and now you're coming at me and saying I'm the socialist? I'm the savior of the country from the socialist. That was interesting. Now, it could have been, you know... I mean he was Florida. He
1: had he knows who he's talking to, you know. But
0: that's the key. That's what's interesting. And the speech yesterday at Gettysburg on essentially, you know, American division was he is dog whistling to the left that he's not gonna betray them while he is desperately trying as hard as he can to say to precisely those people that Abigail Spanberger and the moderates in the Democratic coalition who are worried about uh, their position because they're in districts that were Republican, that they flipped Democratic in 2018. He is saying, I'm not your enemy. Don't, I am talking, I'm saying sweet nothings in your ear about what America is and should be like. And I love America and I don't go with these, Crazy people, and um, so far, there is no aside from the uh, enthusiasm gap question on in polling, there's no indication that he's losing the the left of the left, except that he doesn't have people saying, "I'm going to drag myself over over you know over broken glass to vote for you, eh?
2: But this only seems smart and interesting because he's being completely facilitated in doing it by uh, the media that doesn't push him to 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 take a lane under normal circumstances. This would be completely untenable and weak looking and and wishy washy. I mean, that that's that is what it is. It's wishy washy, but it seems like a like some sort of strategic triumph now because he's the, the conditions are such that he gets away with it completely. All well, right, so exactly. I did watch
3: that town hall this morning, <clears throat> and we were talking about uh, stimulus and COVID spending, and I think it's, it's relevant in this socialism portion of the conversation, you know, whether he what he's going to commit to. So I want to read you this quote, because it deserves to be read. But guess what, folks? If we spend money giving tax breaks for a racehorse, we can get tax breaks for the kind of things that are out there that we're doing. Three martini lunch. God almighty. Why can't we, in fact? give a tax break for people, free access to healthcare if you're in the middle of a COVID crisis. Now, that was unintelligible, but if you were to parse it- He'd
4: already had the three martini lunch at that point, yeah. perhaps.
3: Yeah, I would imagine. I think it was just, that was the menu. That wasn't the order for tomorrow's uh, tomorrow. Um, but what he's saying there is that all money towards COVID. No not no, no dollar is not worth spending in the effort to stop COVID. Right. Um, and free access to healthcare i don't know how you you suggest anything other than he's he's desirous of big spending bills when it comes to healthcare and covid and uh you know just the the but general the general right. progressive not, program there yeah.
0: but that's not you know socialism that's not that's not bernie sanders and 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 aoc and the squad that's sort of Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale, big government you know uh, stuff, including all the union stuff that Matt mentioned that Pelosi wanted to shovel into the uh, relief bill. Um, and, and by the way, that is a little journey back in time to the 80s, because the, the evil of the three martini lunch was one of the selling points of the tax reform bill of 1986 that he was, you know, that he agreed to was all this, we're going to end, I mean, my God, you have no, I mean, you guys, some of you are really too young for this, but I mean, it really was like the three martini lunch is that, this is no more, you American taxpayers are not going to be paying for people's three martini lunch. And what did they end up doing? I think at the end, they ended up lowering the deductibility of entertainment expenses for meals and stuff like that. From uh, like 20%, like you could at some point in that bill, and I think it's got gotten a lot more. Uh, but it was like it could you could deduct 100% of a of an entertainment meal, and then you could do it at 80%. So at least assuming there was food, the 20% that was dedicated to at least one martini was therefore no longer going to be tax deductible. But that's where you get Biden, the old guy. You know, is when he starts talking about. The three martini lunch, like uh, more like it's like you know no edibles for you. Like what I mean, this is not <laughs> 2020. You know, it's more like you know no you know no CBT well, or whatever.
1: <laughs> You can't have a three martini lunch except at home, where I That's guess you right, can, yeah you meet the 20% capacity or 15% yeah.
0: capacity. Yeah. By the way, so that was incoherent. And it, here are the two things that I think uh, Biden is you know aside from the media's you know going easy on him. So Trump has lowered the bar for coherence, obviously. Trump is a word salad guy. Uh, you, you know, he says stuff, you don't know what he's saying. You, you publish it and you don't know what you're looking at and all of that. So the baseline for coherence is now much, much lower, particularly if you have a race between two, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a head-to-head between uh, Mr. Incoherent and Mr. Incoherent, then the bar is much lower. Um, if you take away the coherence issue, Um, And you watch that town hall debate. Uh, The idea that Biden is senile has to literally really has to be put back in the drawer. This is a canny campaign and he is executing it as cannily as he can, because whether he's old or young or something like that, he's a blatherskite idiot, Biden. But he is sticking very closely to this line where he is. I'm hinting that I'm left, but I'm trying to stay in the center, and I'm not going to give those guys the rep- anything, I'm not going to give any sharp edges for them to try to exploit. And he did it for 90 minutes, like, or whatever it was, and, and that, you know, again, he, he, went, he got easy questions and all of that, but he still did it. And so, you know, that that turns out to, I think, have been a, a, a rather unfertile field for the Republicans and Trump to have plowed so relentlessly that Biden wasn't up to the job.
4: I mean, they would have done better. I, I still he isn't up have, to the job. I'm not right, saying he's up yeah. to the job. I mean, but if you I, go I, back and look at even during, the, during his uh, tour of duty as vice president and listen to some of the stuff he said then versus now, he has definitely slowed down cognitively, you know, maybe just as a result of the natural aging process but i think they would have done much better to actually attack biden the way all of his democratic opponents in various presidential primaries over the year did which is just what you said he's kind of idiotic when it comes to the details of governance <laughs> and he and he does his, he has a persona that at, if you push at it a little bit um, crumbles right he becomes either thin-skinned and defensive or he becomes incoherent and that's still biden um, he either that or like I mean, Trump is not the person to attack him substantively on, on policies. But in terms of personality, he's also not an empathetic human being. And the idea that that he has been able to embrace empathy as his brand has only happened because Trump is so you know entirely devoid of it. But I do think there were better ways to attack him in terms of his uh kind of likability slash persona. I mean, we, we're, we're obviously, as the New York Times reminded us again today, not allowed to attack Kamala Harris ever over anything because that makes us racist and sexist. So you really, you're just a horrible human being if you attempt to critique her in any way, shape or form. So I guess we should just keep our focus on Biden, which will be interesting in terms of looking at how critiques of her performance tonight will play in the mainstream media. I, I, it's gonna be a bloodbath.
0: So speaking of Harris, vice presidential debate tonight, Obviously, uh, we'll have a freakishly, my guess is we'll have a freakishly large audience for a vice presidential debate, given obvious reasons that we have two 375-year-old men running for office. And so the possibilities of uh, them uh, needing to be succeeded are are larger than uh, under ordinary circumstances. Um, Matt, what do you... What are you looking for aside from the the spit guard, the salad guard that is going to be separating Harris and uh, Harris and Pence? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that might be the star of the debate. Uh, I don't think Harris is a very good debater. I think uh, Tulsi Gabbard um, flummoxed her several times uh, when she was still participating in the debates. She's very good. Harris is at canned lines. I noticed in one of the reports I read that she's practiced a few zingers, you know, uh, and so she'll probably (laughs) use them. Uh, just remember I mean, that was her that was her moment in the first debate when she uh, called you know Biden uh, you know racist for defending uh, busing uh, or being against busing rather in the in the 1970s uh, like the majority of Americans were at the time um, so uh, on the other hand I, I think Pence is a very good debater, and I think uh, it's very hard to get under Pence's skin, as been evidenced by the last four years, <laughs> where he's had to be the uh, man who's calm and in control, uh, unlike his boss. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd be interested in watching it. Um, I think Pence is going to come out ahead. Uh, I think uh, what's yeah.
2: going to be interesting, though, is, is the extent to which um, Pence is going to be put on the defensive about Trump, right? Uh, as opposed to policy, um, uh, apart from ha- what he's going to be able to get in chipping away at, uh, Kamala, um, there's, there's going to be, you know, it's, there's going to be sort of like this, Oh, we have an opportunity to ask a sane person what what's going on with Trump, uh, feeling.
4: You know, she's going to look him in the eye and say, aren't you afraid that he right. could have infected you? Don't you realize he doesn't care about you? I mean, <laughs>
3: yeah. well, well, is, I, I mean I'm
2: looking forward. It's going to be interesting to see how he how, how Pence
3: um, sort of goes at that. Yeah. His best tactic is to go on offense and make Kamala Harris defend her attacks on the top of the ticket of which she's a part Um so you can expect that but john observed that four years ago mike pence invented this entirely fictional version of donald trump and then defended that version um so that would surely be an easier task ahead of him if he were to adopt that sort of position today if he will if he even bothers to defend the president's actions when especially when it comes to covet um, because now that's a, the issue that's on everybody's minds, and B, where he performs, according to every poll that we've seen on the matter, really terribly.
0: I, I think we are going to see the issue that we have been talking about uh, on this podcast as a dominating issue tonight, which is the president came out and said he doesn't want to help the American people. He literally came out and said he doesn't want to help the American people. He's not going to negotiate with the majority in the House, on providing the kind of help that the american people need so desperately and they need it because he's mishandled and mismanaged covid so much that he got it i mean it's it's total this what i'm saying here is you know complete demagoguery but um it's uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a gimme i think and uh, and and the through line i mean her ability that given this moment to connect all of these disparate strands which of course biden tried to do in the first debate uh, and trump didn't know how to handle it cuz he was going at his own strategy which was you know this is your recession um, and and Trump being unable to say, uh, this is my recession, I created the coronavirus, I created um, the economy without corona was going great, and then corona came, so you're blaming me for uh, a recession that your, your your you know fever-supportive lockdowns is making worse? But he couldn't even do that, so now you have this just this opportunity that's been given to by these two things that happened to one happened to Trump and one Trump did, which is that he decided to be the alpha male on the, on the ending of the negotiations that he then apparently went, Oh crap, maybe I shouldn't have ended them so quickly. Let me keep negotiating on Twitter or, and, and, and the virus uh, itself. That, that would be my presumption. Um, But I'm also thinking, and maybe we can end on this, uh, the line of the last 12 to uh, 18 hours in in the press and in the reporting, sort of behind the scenes reporting, is that um, uh, the calamity that is facing the, the Trump campaign are, are two numbers that are showing up in the polls and in private polls and in state polls and in national polls and in Senate polls, which is uh, a meltdown of Trump support among seniors and a gender gap. The likes of which, according to Tim Alberta and Politico, no one has ever seen before in which particularly college educated women who were actually uh, you know who are actually often Republican voters have gone in numbers away from Trump that are beyond unprecedented, and if that's true, then The political strategy of the, you can either lean into that to keep it going, or you can start banking some of that and then doing what we were talking about before, which is going for the, going kind of for the Trump voter and seeing whether you can knock some of those people away from him just to really deliver the knockout blow. Going with the white, going with some kind of message for the white working class. I don't know what that is. Uh, if you were Malcolm Pence,
1: you're going to make that message.
0: I'm just speculating. <laughs> OK,
1: yeah. I mean, I, what I like about this debate is it will be uh, not like a coffee clatch down at the Roy Rogers where two guys start Doing over what they did during the Korean War, and everyone just kind of throws up their hands and says, "Get me I out!" I didn't
0: of- know they had coffee clutches at Roy Rogers.
1: Oh, well, they used to. Well, they used to. My my great uncle, uh, World War Two veteran, used to go to one when he was in his seventies. But in any case, um, <clears throat> this would be it. We'll get like this picture of you know what American politics was like <clears throat> prior to five years ago, and what it might like, it, what it might be like again, uh, in, uh beginning in January if this works out for Biden uh, in in a month. I'll just point out, though, we're recording this podcast on October 7th, uh, 2020. It was October 8th, 2016, when the Access Hollywood uh, story broke on the Washington Post in the late afternoon and the WikiLeaks uh, batch came out uh, a few hours later. And so I, I think there is a tendency, look, Donald Trump has never led Joe Biden. So I would not be surprised if, he is defeated. But I would say I think the Washington press uh, has completely committed itself to this idea that the election is over, and um, I'm 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 still not ready to. to
0: that, is, submit. that is that is so terrifying to my liberal friend. This is what's interesting because the the press corps uh, in in the party line atmosphere that is Twitter. If anybody remembers the old party line where, you know, basically people, seven or eight people uh, in a neighborhood basically had the same phone number, the same phone line. And so if you picked up the phone, you could hear somebody else's or you could talk to each other on the phone. Twitter is like a giant party line and they're all talking to each other and they're all spinning themselves up into this. They've never seen anything like this before. But I will tell you that rank and file ordinary liberals are scared to death of this assurance. And when I say things to them, like, I don't know, maybe Trump is through it, They're like, don't say that because it's the evil eye. I'm giving me, it's everything they want. It's everything they want to hear. And if, and if you say it, you are going to summon karmic retribution, And they'll say to me accusingly, you said that Hillary was going to win, and now look where we are. Like, I did it. Like, I did it because I, like everybody else, said Hillary was going to win. (laughs) It's my fault. It's my fault because they were all comforted because, of course, I thought Trump was going to lose like everybody else. And then as I look back, you know, and and so uh, the idea was, well, you know, John's a conservative. He thinks that uh, Trump is going to lose. So uh, therefore, we can be confident that he's going to lose. But um, we should just say, just for sake of argument, just to make the point that uh, Biden is now over nine in the polling averages. The highest Hillary ever got against Trump was seven. Uh, Biden's over nine and he's got these and we'll see and and uh, and the state numbers are bad. So uh, it
3: it would be it would be safe to say that this vice presidential debate, if it matters, would be the first vice presidential debate to really matter. Uh, at the end in, in on Election Day, um, it might, insofar as Joe Biden is an aged figure <laughs> and his vice president, more so than Donald Trump's, is going to take on outside and outsize importance if she stumbles. Um, my, Mike Pence is a calming figure. Mike Pence is a very composed figure, quite unlike the dynamic in the first debate where Donald Trump is frenetic and Joe Biden is just sort of over overwhelmed with frustration You know, Kamala Harris is really easy to knock off message. Uh, She's been and her message is usually pretty poorly thought out. So the question that we've been debating here was whether or not she's going to just stick to whatever the debate prep is, adhere to the campaign line and not ad lib. But if she does, if she decides to go with her instincts, she can make a fool of herself. It's happened before. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if it happens again. And if she does, she could have a bad news cycle for herself and put the the Biden campaign on defense for a couple of news cycles, which would result in the kind of phenomena that you're talking about John absolute liberal panic and the per, the perspective the perception on their part that the election that is going their way in every observable metric yeah. is somehow slipping out of their fingers. Yeah well look, the worst
0: vice presidential debate performance or the worst moment in the history of vice presidential debates, Uh, ended with the ticket that that vice president was on winning by eight points. So that was, of course, Quayle versus Benson in 1988 and the you're no Jack Kennedy. Um, That, by the way, was a total act of political malpractice because the line that uh, that Quayle. uh, Same experience in the Senate as John F. Kennedy uh, had had, um, was something that Republicans had been retailing in the press for a week, and so uh, the Republican prep, the Republicans prepping him for it, and then he said it, right? Mm-hmm. He said it, and it never occurred to the Republicans who were prepping him that the zinger that Benson threw at him was the obvious thing to say, meaning, "Oh, really? Yeah, so you're you think you're John F. Kennedy?" Um and they didn't prep him, uh, which was an act of malpractice and also malpractice on on Quayle's part, since of course he did say, I John F. Kennedy. <laughs> um, which uh which, you know, he didn't in the sense that he wasn't like a hero. He didn't, you know, man a uh, captain a PT boat in World War II. Uh he may have had other things com- common to Kennedy, but he didn't have that. Anyway, uh, it's sort of an interesting thing that the worst vice presidential debate in American history ended up with a landslide victory for the ticket that the worst performing vice presidential candidate was on. So that shows you how much this 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 probably matters. Um, of course, if she gives, uh, if she provides a flub. Uh, It'll be the first bad news cycle that the Biden team will have had in, I don't know how long. And, uh, and you know, in in the, in the idea that every day between now and the election, you know, who wins the day is going to tell you, uh, where the election's going to go. Yeah. It would be helpful to Trump to at least win, win a day. Uh, anyway, Matt Continetti, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt has a, uh, we, we have our 75th anniversary issue of commentary coming out at the end of next week, and Matt has a remarkable piece on commentary's story as, as an influential voice. They're good stuff. Uh, wait till you read it. Uh, Christine, Abe, Noel will be back tomorrow to discuss the debate we just discussed. Uh, probably less interestingly once there is a debate than it's speculatively. And for all of you, uh, I am John Pop Horitz, Keep the candle burning.